thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. You're listening to a podcast from 702 and Cape Talk. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. All right, let's hear what Chris has for us this morning. And of course, you are part of the show. You call in with your questions on 021-446-0567-011-883-0702. We are taking your SMSs as well. Chris, good morning. Hi, Reggie. Hello. Well, it seems that we never stop searching for the answer to the healthy body weight. What's the latest in that regard? Well, scientists say that a herbal remedy, a vine that grows in parts of China and Korea and Japan, this contains a chemical that may be able to turn around the obesity epidemic. About one person in, well, three is overweight in the world, certainly in the more developed parts of the world at the moment. And the numbers of obese people is set to double in the next about 15 years and may reach more than half a billion. So it's very, very serious because of the intended health risks. We know that information and exercise and those sorts of things don't seem to be making a huge dent in the problem, so we need something else to help us. And so Mm. scientists at Harvard Medical School in America have been looking at various other possible remedies. This is Umut Ozkan, who's just published a paper in the journal Cell this week, describing the use of the thunder god vine. Now, when you see this pop up in your inbox, you think, wow, this is just Mm. spam. You don't want to eat that. But (laughs) it's not. Uh, This this plant contains a chemical. It's called celestrol. And this celestrol chemical can sensitize your brain and specifically the appetite center in your brain, the hypothalamus, to a signal called leptin. Leptin is made by your fat cells and the fatter you become, the higher the levels of leptin in your blood. And it's supposed to be there like a brain fuel gauge. It tells your brain how well fed you are. Mm. But for some reason, when we start to gain weight, the brain becomes less sensitive to this signal coming in from the fat. So it doesn't curb appetite in the right way. And what this group of researchers have found is that this celestrol chemical contained in the thunder god vine, when given to mice that are overweight because they've been eating too much, these mice lose, uh, well, they cut their food intake by 79%. They lose about 40% of their body fat and their weight drops by 25%, and that was all achieved within three weeks. And once they get to a normal weight, the weight loss stops, Mm. as you would expect based on what they think is going on with this agent. And they say in their paper, if Celestrol works in humans the way it does in mouse models, then the outcome would be an effective therapeutic approach for the treatment of obesity. They didn't see any toxic effects in these mice when they kept taking this stuff for nearly a year, Mm. which is really encouraging. Okay. Well, we'll pay attention to that. I'll ask you about it in the next couple of months. I'm sure there'll be some uh, willing recipients of uh, the Thunder God Vine. Our lines are open on 021-446-0567 or double one let us go to Martha in Mayfair. Good morning to you. Hi, good day. Tell me, what, ha- what would happen if you ate glass? What would happen? Hello, Martha. Oh, okay. What would happen uh, if you eat blood? I, I would say that the, the, the likely outcome is going to be that 
it would injure you because glass is hard and sharp. It doesn't break and form smooth edges unless it's been in the ocean for a while. It forms very sharp, jagged edges. And if those particles were to lodge in parts of your digestive tract, then they could form a perforation. And this is really serious because if you perforate your guts, then you can get peritonitis and this is life-threatening. Not everyone's going to have that kind of outcome, though. And some people will be lucky and your gut has the ability to move things through quite quickly and you might get away with it, but I wouldn't advise it. What, are you craving uh, glass, Martha, or are you just, you're just curious? Hey, Martha? Uh, what happened is, is that... Um I had a piece of toast yesterday, and um, when I was eating this toast, it was the first piece of bread for the day, I felt that there was something I was chewing that wasn't right. Okay. And, and when I looked, I, I, it was glass, the butter, the butter dish, somebody had broken the butter dish and pieces of the glass had oh, gone. Okay, so it's more out of oh, no. you phoning. Okay. I'm sure, I'm sure she'll be fine. Hey, hey Christmas, she, did, should she have it checked out or, or what? Well, if you get any symptoms, Martha, then I would suggest that you go and get checked out. Mm-hmm. Um, but hopefully it's all going to see nature taking its course and it will make an exit the way everything else does. And hopefully it won't hurt too much when it does. Mm-hmm. Okay, our lines are open for you on 021-446-0567, I have an SMS question here. Somebody wants to know how come fat doesn't all look the same? The fat that is in eggs, the fat that is in meat and a piece of steak on the side, uh, what constitutes fat and why does it seem to have a different composition or texture? Well, at the simplest level, fat is a storage organ for oils and effectively oil is your body's main chief energy store. It's a very, very energy-dense molecule and when you have uh, food intake, it goes whatever you eat goes into your body and your liver converts any excess calories that you have into fat to store the energy. The fat goes round in the bloodstream and is then moved into adipose tissue, adipose being the word for the storage organ and it stays there until you need it but in order to uh, get the the fat into the adipose tissue you need a blood supply Um, you also don't need very much of a blood supply so it tends to be a pale color it's pale compared to a blood-rich muscle which is a much redder color and uh, that's pretty much what fat is in terms of why it looks different well that's the same way as saying well why do we all look different the distribution of fat around the body is different from one person to another and from one animal to another and also the composition of the fat may be different. Some animals, in order to avoid losing lots of heat and also to get through a long, hard, arduous winter, they're going to store a lot of fat. Uh, a whale, for example, stores fat as blubber. Now, this is going to be quite different than your pork chop, but at the same time, they're both forms of fat. They're both energy stores. And uh, when you cook meat, the fat that comes out of the meat is because there's fat around the meat, but also between the muscle fibers as well. And it's basically oil. Hmm. We've once had a question around cables and how um, and, and wires and why they're always tied up in knots. Somebody wants to know why is it that when you drop a rope on the ground and pick it up later, it is in knots, yet when it dropped, there were no knots. That's from do. Oh, tell me about it. Mm-hmm. The classic one is headphone cables. Yes. Because what you do is you've, you've been listening on your mobile phone or something or using your hands-free kit in the car, not touching your phone, of course, and you wrap the... Uh, the cable neatly around your fingers and then you plonk it on, onto the, your dashboard or in your pocket and then you think, right, no, later on I'm going to listen to my uh, phone or whatever. You hoik it out and 
oh dear, what happened there? Now, the reason is that when you think about it, when you coil the rope up, you're putting it, or, or you're establishing order. You're putting the rope into a very specific shape and uh, arrangement relative to itself. Now, when you pick the rope up, unless you pick it up very, very carefully, it's possible for some of those coils of rope to fall through and mix into other coils of rope. So if you've got, if you imagine what a knot is, basically it's one bit of rope looping round and through another. If you drop coils of the rope through the middle of your big spool of rope, you're effectively tying it in a knot. And because they, the rope is in a very ordered shape when you've coiled it, it's very easy for order to become disorder. There's very many more ways for an ordered thing to become disordered than the other way around, and it's much easier for the former than the latter to happen, and that's why things get into a tangle. And it's a really important mm. problem in nature, actually, because if you think about it, in your cells, your body's got about 100 trillion cells in it. Lots of them are microbes, but they've got the same problem. In each one of our cells, give or take, blood doesn't have it, but in pretty much all of our cells there are nuclei, and in the nucleus is about a metre or two of your DNA. A metre packed into something which is literally too small for you to see with your eye. It's maybe 50, 40, 20 nan, um, micrometres across. So these are, you know, one um, half a millimetre or smaller, maybe even a tenth, a um, hundredth of a millimetre across these cells. So how are you packing something which is a couple of metres long into something which is a hundredth of a millimetre across? Well, you need to, to spool it up very, very carefully. And so nature has had to solve this very problem to avoid your DNA getting into all kinds of tangles. And uh, nature does it very, very, very well by winding the DNA around tiny spools called nucleosomes. Uh, so maybe there's a thing for us to learn there. They're like mm -hmm. the hosepipe reels of the DNA world. David in Germiston, hi. Hi. Um, um, I've got a question for the native scientists uh, with regards to epileptic fits. Uh, is it is it true that if you sort of you know separate the two brain spheres by cutting the the corpus callosum that you can stop the, the epileptic fits um, if if you allow them to to function independently? Hello, David. Uh, well, this is a really good question, and it uh, in fact won one person called Roger Sperry the Nobel Prize, or at least uh, some of this work did. The reason that this discovery was made is that in the old days people had no drugs with which to control epilepsy or very poor drugs that just had terrible side effects and so they began to look at more radical ways to solve the problem because in epilepsy what happens is that a piece of the brain or a region of the brain called the epileptogenic focus starts to display abnormal patterns of nerve firing activity and rather like dissent spreading through a crowd this abnormal pattern of activity begins to radiate out and spread away from the site where it's initiated and it involves and recruits other parts of the brain. And if this spreads across a structure called the corpus callosum, which collects, connects the right and the left side of the brain together, then eventually the entire brain gets into this abnormal pattern of firing and this triggers your full-blown seizure and loss of consciousness. And in some people who were having intractable epilepsy, they were having many, many fits, maybe 40, 50 fits a day, which was completely destroying their lives. Mm -hmm. Doctors took the radical step of trying to separate the two halves of the brain so that they could stop the pattern of abnormal activity spreading from one side to the other and therefore abolish the generalized nature of these seizures. And they went in and used a scalpel, effectively, to cut through these connecting structures that link the right and left half of the brain. And it's the means by which 
the right side of the brain shares information with the left side of the brain, so quite literally the right hand knows what the left hand's doing. This had the effect of, of hem- helping some of these people, but it also meant that the normal function of the brain was disrupted and they had to develop some interesting strategies to get round the problem. All right, thank you very much, David. But, but why it won Roger Sperry the Nobel Prize is that it offered a unique opportunity to explore what the right and left sides of the brain actually do. Sorry, Chris, we keep losing you. I think there's something wrong with our connection. We keep losing you, but it's not that bad. It's not that bad, so we'll just make the best of it. Uh, is it Tohir in Mariesburg? Yes, good morning, Lady. How are you? Fine. Your question? All right, then. Uh, really, my question is, you know, when a person loses uh, weight, you know, where does the excess fat uh, go to? How does it get rid of it? Where does it uh, release out of the body? Okay, we started the question around weight loss. So what actually happens? <laughs> <laughs> so, Chris, what Indeed, happens well, your, to the your fat? body is no different to your car. It's burning a fuel and it's throwing away waste products, just like your car does. Your car burns petrol or diesel. It mixes it with oxygen from the air and you produce carbon dioxide and water which goes out of the car exhaust pipe. Well, the same thing effectively happens in a human. You put food into your mouth, that's like fuel going into the fuel tank. It gets burned in the engine which is your metabolism in all of your cells and the waste goes out of your exhaust pipe. And it comes out in two different exhaust pipes, three actually, because the water comes out through Mm. urine, kidneys make that. The solid waste which you can't absorb gets chucked out the back passage and the other parts of the energy, they get mixed with oxygen and burned to produce carbon dioxide and water. The water we've dealt with, but the carbon dioxide you breathe out. So as you lose weight, the reason you're losing weight is because you're turning fat, which is long chains of carbon atoms linked together, they're hydrocarbons, you're chopping them up into carbon elements and reacting those with oxygen to make CO2, carbon dioxide. When you breathe that out, the fat is gone. So you're losing weight by literally turning fat into carbon dioxide and similar molecules. Okay, I hope you got that uh, to hear. There was some uh, breaking of the line there, but the crux of it uh, we, we were able to follow. Uh, did you get your answer to hear? Are you happy? Is there anything got, that you I've want to do? Yeah. Okay, so urine, the backside, uh, sweating, and all of that, and energy. Let's go to uh, Berdeen in Rodebuert. Um Hi, good morning. Um, I've got a question concerning snoring. Um, if the tonsils are removed, would that uh, prevent snoring from happening? Hmm. Hello. Well, first of all, what's snoring? Well, snoring is where the back part of your throat becomes a bit too floppy. And this can happen as we age anyway, but also if there is a lot of weight around the throat because there's fat around your throat, for example, or because your muscle reflexes that normally guard and protect your airway don't work very well, then the airway flops back and slightly, or in some cases almost totally, blocks your airway. So as you breathe in, then you've got to push the tissue out of the way, rather like you blowing through the neck of a balloon where you've chopped the balloon off and you've got to sort of blow through the, the chopped off neck and it has to push the parts of the balloon apart to let the air through and you get a, a flopping <laughs> noise and that's the snoring. Um, the, the tonsils shouldn't may make this a lot worse because most of the time the tonsils won't be big enough to cause a problem because your tonsils are lymphoid tissue they're part of your immune defenses but they shouldn't be big and in the way unless there's something other else wrong so in normal circumstances the tonsils should be a normal size and so i would have thought that wouldn't massively improve or or, uh, exacerbate the problem to be honest Mm -hmm. and then chris i have a question about water you know uh, we often told that you, you drink eight glasses six to eight glasses of water per day um, is, is is there any science to, to that? And can you drink too much water? And how much uh, how much is too much? Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you drink too much water, then you dilute your blood 
this obviously has major problems because your blood chemistry has to be right for your tissues to work properly. But the other thing that can happen is that then the water begins to move out of your blood vessels and into your tissues, and it makes the tissues swell. And it's all very well if you've got a part of your body that can swell, but your brain can't swell because it's stuck inside the vault of your skull and so this can put the pressure up inside your brain and can cause people to lose consciousness and it's very very dangerous so drinking too much is a very bad idea the human body has evolved over millions of years to drink when we need to drink and so the best thing to do and the best advice is to drink when you feel thirsty because your reflexes are very very good at making sure that you actually keep the right water balance. So if it's a hot day and you're sweating a lot and you feel thirsty, you should have a drink. If you don't feel thirsty, you're probably okay. Hmm. Okay. Uh, let's go to Seasway in Germiston. Good morning. Morning, morning. Uh, my question is that I want to find out why do all the babies cry when they are born, uh, even the <laughs> most charismatic ones? Oh, the babies cry when they're born. Why don't they laugh? Come out of the womb laughing. <laughs> well, it's probably a protective reflex, to be honest, because... Um, when a baby's first born, its lungs are completely collapsed and its airways are full of water, uh, the bag of fluid it grew up in, basically. And when it comes out into the world, it gets squeezed very hard out through the birth canal. And then when it comes out, the cold air and the shock and often a bit of a slap on the back from the midwife, <laughs> although mm. don't do that so much these days, makes the baby gasp and <gasps> take a deep breath. Mm. And the crying reflex means that it's got to exercise its lungs a lot. And also it tells its mum, hey, I'm here. You need to pay attention to me. And this, it sort of encourages a nurturing instinct in the mother, both both in, in humans and animals as well. And so you're, you're more likely to bond with, protect and nurture the baby and take care of it when it's most vulnerable, when it's first come out if it cries and tells you, hey, come on, you've got to pay me some attention. Let's go to Alfred in Alex. Good morning to you. Morning, I just want to find out what, which uh, tissues in the body determines where the both of the threat is supposed to come out, especially when, as a German, in my case, it comes out at the head part of it. Oh, so you sweat on your head. So you want to know what determines where the sweat is coming from. Most of the well, sweat comes from sweat glands, and sweat glands are clusters of blood vessels which are a bit like a coffee percolator when the blood goes through the blood vessel the blood vessel walls are slightly leaky and water and salts from the blood leak out into the gland and then track down a small conduit onto the skin surface and the water then spreads out in a thin film over the surface of the skin and as it evaporates it takes with it so-called layers heat of evaporation because the, the water molecules rob the skin of heat energy in order to break bonds between the water molecules to make it go from a liquid into a gas and that takes away energy in the form of heat energy from your skin surface and that's how it cools you down so the distribution of sweat glands on the skin determines where you sweat and different parts of the body have different distributions of sweat glands the reason you tend to notice sweating from your head particularly in men, and particularly in men as we get older, is that our hair tends to thin or recede a bit as we get older, and the hair is like a giant sponge for soaking up sweat. So as you get older and you have slightly less hair, then you may notice you apparently perspire on your head more, and this is because there's less places for the hair to be, the, the sweat to be soaked up into. But we all know where the sweaty bits are. Your feet squirt something like half a litre of sweat into your socks uh, every day uh, <laughs> more if you're busy underarms sweat a lot so places where um, basically you need to lose heat places where you need to also uh, announce your presence by producing animal smells those areas tend to be sweatier hmm. well chris thank you very much we survived we survived we lost you here and there but uh, thank you so much for answering our oh questions. i'm sorry no it's okay it wasn't a crisis you're welcome. at all okay 
thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.